listening to The Watchers, a show where two women from opposite ends of New Jersey watch TV and movies about uh, unruly female teens. <laughs> I got still true. I got nothing for this one. No, that continues to be true. Yeah, it is. A, it is a running theme. Um, there is an off-screen haircut. Yes, there's still haircuts that would probably have been significant. If we'd gotten to see it, I'm going to bet before we get into it, I'm going to bet it was filmed. It was and was probably very would have been very significant um, if we'd seen it. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think the big the big thing with this movie and the reason that it has an afterlife, A, is the Times Square of it all, but also is the clearly lesbian uh, like themes in this movie that were taken out. Yeah. Apparently, like, this movie was, um, I started to say explicitly, and I mean that in terms of, like, um, uh, intentionally present, written, filmed, Mm -hmm. this was supposed to be a queer love story of some kind and was taken out, as opposed to what has been the case in many of the movies. I was thinking about it. Yeah. I was going to say, isn't it strange? It's not strange. It says a lot about the time period that that you grew up in and the time period that I grew up in. Yeah. how many of have we had any movies that are that are overtly explicitly queer on our show hosted by two queer women? I don't think so. I don't I, think so. Yeah, they're all things that and this God, two minutes in, we're going back to the dissertation that we found. <laughs> we gotta have that um she's now a librarian. We've gotta have her on at some point. I would love um, that. Yeah. We should reach out to her. She seems cool. I followed her on Twitter. Um Oh, I love that. But that whole dissertation and this, for people who are just joining us for like the first or second time, you may not know any idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) Because Times Square is your favorite movie. Uh, Yeah, right. And you've got Uh, a Google alert set for it. You never know. You never know. (laughs) I'm sure there's, hey, this movie was like cited by Kathleen Hanna and like, you know, was listed as like a precursor to the Riot Girls movement. It is. Uh, Yeah, this movie's a bigger deal. In the way that Empire Records was a smaller deal than I realized, this movie this is, is a, a bigger, deal. bigger yeah. deal. So for those of you just joining us, because Times Square is your favorite movie of all time. Um, <laughs> oh, episode- I'm Andrea. Oh, shit. <laughs> and-, keep- and I'm Jody. There we go. I So many episodes ago when we were watching, maybe it was Legend of Billie Jean, we found a dissertation about um, the sort of queer undertones in these movies from this time period. And I will find it and tell you exactly what it is because it keeps coming up. Um, I should just keep a permanent link to it in our, not even in our episode notes, in our show description. It's actually still on the desktop of my computer. So it's called, Uh look at us, we're shouting out a dissertation before we do anything else. (laughs) Unhappy Medium, Filmic Tomboy Narrative and Queer Feminist Spectatorship, a dissertation by Lynn Stahl from 2015. So, Lynn Stahl, now a librarian, probably maybe her first podcast shout out, but, you know, good for us for finding this. <laughs> we found it during the search for um, references to the female, um, the tomboy in movies, I think during Legend of Billie Jean. I think that's right. But the whole reason I'm bringing this up is because your point that you just made is that most of the movies we have talked about have queer subtext that is either intentional or unintentional and has been, like pulled out by queer viewers and that's what that dissertation is about it's Mm -hmm. about finding that in places it may not 
have been necessarily outright intended. In this case, it was outright intended and then removed. Like so Alan Moyle has said, like in the DVD commentary, this was supposed to be a lesbian love story. Mm-hmm. Um, although he has also said it's not gay, it's pre-gay. It's two young people falling in love. My idea was that if they got if they were older, they would be gay because we have to point out these are young teens, right? Like this so, is a thirteen and a sixteen year old. And Alan Moyle, I guess, is kind of confusing, like romantic yeah. attraction and sexuality, and he's a little Pretty mixed gay. up there because yeah. they are gay, right? Even right. if they are not engaging yeah. in gay sexual activity right. which is i think what he's trying to say yeah his determination is a little weird there yeah i think what he's trying to say is this is not a movie about two young people who have sex which Correct. is good I'm, I'm glad that he's clarifying that there wasn't Same. like that what was cut from this movie wasn't like explicit lesbian sex. yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm, 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 <laughs> between teenagers let's not I do that ass- i assumed as much but i understand him maybe wanting to clarify that yeah. but they are not i should say pre <laughs> Pre-gay is very funny. Yeah, I know. It's great. (laughs) It's great. Yeah, and that's not that many years ago. The Blu-ray commentary came out, like, not... I mean, it's a Blu-ray. It wasn't that long ago. Also, I... I, We'll we'll get into... I think uh, for folks who have been listening for a while, this one is maybe going to feel like some of our earlier movie reviews where we were kind of working through the plot and what we thought about them as we went. I know we've gotten slightly more (laughs) organized. I don't think this movie is going to allow for it because we don't have somebody in the driver's seat, really, since this is new to both of us. Um, So I will say we will get into a kind of summary, though. I think we might work through this one a little more organically. But one thing I want to say is that I don't think their ages are stated in the movie. I thought I they were so a little older, but I know the then what I'm about to say, which is the actors were only 13 and 15 yeah. at the time. So and if we're in the assume, canon of the movie, they are supposed to be that that young. That's so which young, is crazy. Because, I thought, like, yeah, my thought was like maybe like I don't know, fifth. Like I think I thought they were both like somewhere between like 16 and maybe. Well, except I knew they were both. Well, don't they say something about, um. Nikki mm-hmm. being almost old enough to almost turning seventeen. Oh, yeah. Which okay. I guess because in my mind, eighteen is when you're legally an adult. But maybe there's something about the juvenile justice system in New York in the eighties. I don't know. But it was right. it was seventeen okay. um, that she was turning, and they were trying to like have her turn herself in before she was legally right. more liable. I guess. But um, but yeah, um, Pam, Pammy. Um, is supposed to be, I think, like 13 in this movie. Which means they're better actors than I gave them credit for when I assumed, as I often do, that these were older people playing younger. I think I thought they were like 16 and whatever. I don't... Yeah. We, well, we've, we've also, also learned I don't really understand how like <laughs> ages and time and stuff works. Yeah, no, we've established but, that. But I definitely thought the actors were yeah. older. Well, and also I think... I, and again, this could just be me being an old person now and like an old person's mindset, but I think young people looked older then. I think, I mean, I think it seems like young people had, they're just weren't like young haircuts. <laughs> like <laughs> Pam has, she's got hair like um, Andy McDowell in Groundhog Day. Like that's who yeah. she looks like to me. Like that is not a 13 year old's haircut. <laughs> yeah. Well, and. You know, Nikki in the beginning has like a punk haircut and then cuts it even shorter. But yeah, I also do think, though, that like 
in the 80s and 90s, early 90s, young people, like, I guess maybe dressed earl- older earlier or, like, dressed... Maybe it's a subculture thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a subculture thing. It's also like a pendulum swing thing because you see like on TikTok and stuff, um, there'll be these uh, uh, people who will like, it'll be like me when I was 13 and you're dressed Mm. like a a moron. And then it's like, you know, 13 year olds today and they're dressed like they're out of like a fashion magazine. And I know that's not everybody everywhere, but I do think... No, it maybe I think it's right. like a pendulum kind of swinging thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. They definitely appeared. If I hadn't read a little bit about this beforehand and knew that they were, they were actually that young, I wouldn't have known that either. Right. Yeah. And I didn't learn that. I watched this before I did any reading on it. Yeah. Um, so I just had my little brain, which we know is, again, not always the best at determining ages. So Yeah. Yeah. No, I hadn't done too much reading, but because we had been going down sort of this Alan Moyle rabbit hole even before we decided to do this movie. Um, during when we were researching Pump Up the Volume, I did I did some reading about Times Square. Mm-hmm. Also because I'd heard of this movie before and I don't remember where, but I mean, growing up right outside the city in the 80s, I just feel like it came across my like right, right. pop culture knowledge at some point that this existed. Um, should we summarize this quickly for the people that didn't watch it? Yeah. Or try to summarize it quickly. We'll see how we do. Um, And this may turn into just a longer conversation. But um, so the story takes place in late 70s, early 80s, New York City. Um, And we'll talk. It's weird. The city is almost its own character in this movie. (laughs) Um, The city is really insightful. I know. I know. Uh, so two young girls from opposite sides of the tracks. <laughs> we really can't help ourselves. I know. I know. It's, it's, it's getting silly at this point. I suggested to you in text earlier today that we get somebody to make a word cloud of our podcast and like see how often we're talking about the same shit, even though this is supposed to be just like a selection of movies that meant a lot to us. And it's, I we're realizing stress. that it's enough the same how, thing over and over again yeah how little thought we have put into yeah, no pulling, this is not <laughs> just pulling them thematically yeah it's no really not at like, all <laughs> which movies take up the biggest part of my heart is how yeah. i pulled these and it and turns this out one being one yeah. we've never and i know that like it coming from alan moyle and yeah. also he apparently wrote like not apparently he wrote the story for this one so that's even more like i understand that some of the themes are going to yeah be the same but it but, is so funny yeah but it's not like we just have only done alan moyle movies like yeah. we've also done all these other movies that are the same thing um so two teens from opposite ends of the tracks one the child of a commissioner possibly question mark and the other a runaway um no idea where her parents are meet in a psychiatric hospital in manhattan where they're being examined for sort of unspecified seizures slash mental disorders for being unruly or melancholic right i feel like i know it's yeah I know 1980 is we're still i know okay i have two disclaimers before i say what i say i'm prefacing <laughs> my preface with a preface so oh, one that's being the most you think you've ever done <laughs> one being this is not to say we're doing a great job with mental health in 2023 no so that's the first layer the second layer is i know 1980 is still 
were still not doing great with mental health. We weren't right. then either. However, this feels like it might as well be the fucking bell jar with the like vague sort of like what's what's wrong with Pam is like Can she say Massachusetts? <laughs> She's, loud. I think she's sad. Like, yeah. I think I think Pam's yeah. like ultimate diagnosis is like she's a zombie, Andrea. Oh my god, it's so it's. I was just like it's very come, melodramatic. Yeah, big time. Yeah, but, but fine. So they meet at this hospital. Yeah, they meet at this hospital, um, Nikki, because she was, I guess, arrested for playing guitar loudly in an alley. <laughs> And then breaking the headlights of some guy's car. She's a troubled youth. She's troubled. And Pam, because she, like, ran out of a press conference, I guess. Yeah, I get the impression early on that, like, Nikki actually does have some real mental health issues. Yeah. Although, I I would bet a lot of it is stemming from being part of the the system in this way. Yeah. Like, you don't come out of that. basically. Yeah. and not to say that Pamela isn't dealing with her own stuff, but it's but it is a little bit like overbearing parent mm-hmm. being a little too. Um... It's a little early to get into this, but I because you just said that I have to bring up the fact that I couldn't not think about Girl Interrupted. Yeah, while watching this movie, mm-hmm. totally Angelina Jolie's character and Winona Ryder's character, totally like the person that's there because they don't quite fit into society and their parents are really uptight versus the sort of like actually more sick, possibly socially abandoned troublemaker. Right. Actually in need of care. Right. In a way that in need of like professional care. They also mention it's what the second scene, they mention one flew over the cuckoo's nest, which is similar, you know? Yeah. Um, although it's sort of, yeah. Um, yeah. So but they meet I, in the psych hospital uh, and then they don't quite understand each other at first, but apparently Pam is like a poet. So funny that Pam's a poet. I don't know why, but it's just like, I, I, it, you know. She says nothing a, the whole first part of the movie and then all of a sudden they read her poem and it's like, she's like a 40 year old man writing a poem. Again, very funny that she is 13. Yeah. Sure. Um, but so then Nikki decides to run away from the hospital and convinces Pam, uh, Pam from, through the power of the Ramones that she should come with her and some hand gestures. That's basically mm-hmm. it. It's a, a Ramones song and some, some signing and they run My, away together. Queer manic pixie dream girl in 1980. This movie could yeah. have been perfect if they, you know? What I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. That, yeah. Like Pam is just so dazzled by, um, you're so right. Nikki's like, you know, vibrant cigarettes and, and yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That she can't help but follow along. Her refusal to uh, listen Inform. to the man. <laughs> exactly. So they run away together in an ambulance, um, and they run away to what I have figured out through research is most likely 14th. Approximately 11th <laughs> Avenue and 14th Street. Uh, on so the you were able to find them much faster than Pam's dad. Got it. Yes. Yes. It is um, funny that they're just kind of, they don't, because it's, it's interesting that it's a runaway movie, but they stay home. Yeah. Like, they're not hiding. They're not really. hiding kind of hardly yeah. at all. Like yeah. her dad checks in with Nikki from time to time. <laughs> they know where they are. Yeah. That was that. Yeah. We'll talk about that. That was weird. How it was like they ran away. 
but it was everyone knew where they were generally yeah. and because just couldn't they make are them minors yeah like if her dad really wanted to he could have had the police come get her and forcibly bring her home right like, he yeah. knew yeah so yeah so that is kind of interesting that he yeah. kind of lets he sort of lets pam because they even have again this is a little this is later in the movie but she calls home and mm-hmm. he says like you know she kind of like gives him the idea that she is planning on returning home at some point and he yeah. says like please make it soon yeah but he doesn't say like i'm gonna come get you and he he after that one instance where he does try he doesn't really no it's interesting and i mean so like i read articles that say like the 80s is the decade of the runaway mm-hmm. like this is a thing yeah you know like people running away from home like to the city young women and queer people like escaping to places like this but yeah it was interesting to me that there he didn't try to force her home so the the middle of this movie is a little bit of a mush they like essentially fall in love play music together uh pam works at a strip club but doesn't take her clothes off and (laughs) is a very bad dancer that well, that's what's so funny about that is that like i thought what was going to happen was because he's he like the the guy who runs the club she says i'm not taking my top off just good because she is a child 13 and he goes along with it and i thought it was going to be because we're going to find out that she's a great dancer (laughs) like that it's like well fine because she's but she's again but i do kind of it's weird it is weird because I don't like that there's a child dancing at this club, obviously. Mm-hmm. I'm glad she's keeping her clothes on if she is going to dance. Yes. It is sort of interesting that they let her. Because she dances like a kid. Like, they don't. Yeah. She's not, like, weirdly, she's not very sexualized at that club. It's and yet. Very, the whole thing is very strange. I know. And yet there's. By an anybody inf- except. except nikki Nikki. yeah the way she watches her is i was like i think that's when i texted you where i was like i don't know if this movie is leading to a scene where we're gonna see these two girls like be like where it's going to be on the page that Mm -hmm. these are two queer girls figuring that out or if i'm watching a movie where all of that has been cut and obviously i know now that i've done some reading that it's the the latter yeah but that scene is so clearly somebody falling in love watching somebody else dance. Yeah. Like, well, and I think I, when you texted me, I, I texted you back about how it basically is the Aerosmith video it totally with Liv Tyler is. and Alicia Silverstone that we brought up. But, but yeah, it's essentially that totally that type of scene, right? Mm-hmm. Where Nikki is replacing what would normally be a male character, you know, right. falling in love with the dancer on stage. It's so funny to be talking about this stuff, knowing that it that is supposed to be what it is. Every other movie we've watched, we have said these things. I mean, like, yeah, obviously, like, that's yeah. the subtext. Or or certainly this movie allows for this kind of reading. But this movie, that was the intention. Yeah. I'm so frustrated. I know. I want to see Alan Moyle's version of this movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have another character that uh, is a part of the the fabric of New York City. <laughs> Johnny, Johnny LaGuardia. LaGuardia. Great, great name. Johnny LaGuardia, played by Tim Curry. Can I uh, say something? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Get it mad? <laughs> I 
think I can say that about Tim Curry in just about any movie. He's just oh, so yeah. like um magnetic. I mean, he's Tim Curry. Yeah, everybody. I'm not saying anything new. No, obviously, but he is playing a kind of subdued. I think this is yeah. the most like low key I've ever seen Tim Curry. Definitely, um, and it is very interesting to watch. Yeah, well, and like two weeks after we watched Pump Up the Volume, you're like, oh. I mean, Hard Harry. Yeah. Like, right? this is what Hard Harry came from. To- like, like a hundred percent, right? Yeah. Yeah. That voice in the night, the mm-hmm. girls are writing into him to, like, you know, talk about their disaffection mm-hmm. and, you know, rejection of society and all of that. And he's, like, encouraging it and sort of... uh <sighs> He's encouraging it on air. He's reading their letters. And then sort of mid-movie, he brings them in to play their music live in Mm -hmm. studio, which is where the incredibly racist song is played, which to me, I was like, Jesus. Like, it fully took me out of the movie. I was not expecting that. Yeah. And I think um, we should take a little bit of time to talk about that song specifically. Um, But I think, right, it is him bringing them into the station that really kind of catapults them Mm -hmm. into being like, um, like, uh, I almost said urban legends. That's not what I mean. But, uh, these like, like underground celebrity figure type. Yeah. Like, yeah. Billy Jean, like Billy Jean, like hard, Harry, happy, hard on whatever. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to get it right. Um, yeah. Interesting to parallel that with Johnny LaGuardia is an older person putting these young people, giving them a platform to get their message, whatever that message is, out. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's using it kind of for his own, in in a way, because he has his agenda, which is is like paralleled and in... engaged with their sort of i guess agenda um so it's not totally like ex- it's, i think it's mildly exploitive right but, but... I mean, because he, because they are a 13 and 15 year old yeah. to 13 and 15 year old homeless girls so that he knows where they are and where they live and yeah. is like probably should be helping to get them into some sort of care whether that's back with their whatever but mark it's different because he's the he's speaking as that that voice in that generation as yeah he's to, the disaffected teen himself yeah there's a little like pied there is potential for a little like kind of pied pipery stuff with johnny laguardia which doesn't really happen but could um what would isn't. you say his actual agenda is johnny laguardia well i think he's trying to keep there what's what's his name mr pearl um he doesn't want Times Square to be like quote unquote cleaned up, right? Right. He's part of yes. the generation that wants Times Square to stay the way that it is, or not yeah. generation, um, demographic, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so anything that kind of undermines Pearl's message, for example, his having a runaway daughter, right, um, singing obscenities on the radio, yeah, is, is helping his message there. I think that's right. I think like the. We can talk more in detail about this, but I think the movie, one of the things that has lived on about it is that it predicted 
the coming gentrification of the city um, and the fight between sort of the gentrifiers and the people that like lived there. And it was not a, a good place or a safe place in any way, but Times Square now is a whole other thing. I mean, like, right. you and know, there's a difference. There's between... a big conversation to be had about the right. It is a complicated conversation. I don't know that you and I are the two to like really head up this conversation, but uh, I will say not. there's a big difference between people in a community, like working to, to change things or, or like, um, Asking for support, whatever, and people coming in from outside to quote unquote clean up. up. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, an area yeah. so that then those people from the outside can like profit in, in whatever way. I don't even necessarily mean monetarily, though almost always monetarily. Oh, yeah. From said quote unquote cleaning up, which always pushes the people who are already there out and makes things harder for them. Yeah. And so I, you know. And I mean, I guess we can, since we're not doing a traditional, like, quick recap kind of thing and then getting into it, we could talk here a little bit about the Times Square piece of this movie, mm-hmm. if you feel like we can kind of fit it in here. I just, I was really interested to think about the time that this movie was filmed, because the 70s and 80s in New York, especially in Times Square, like, there's a lot that went into why it was like that. And again, I'm not a like urban historian Mm. i'm not necessarily the right person to talk about this but just sort of the general overview of the situation like in the 80s there was the crack epidemic there was the aids epidemic there was austerity measures in new york because the city went bankrupt like they stopped funding fire companies and so Mm. fires in the bronx would like rage out of control because they didn't have a way to fight them the murder rate in the late 80s and early 90s in new york city was insane everyone that's complaining about new york right now and like how (laughs) oh the crime rate's up go look at a fucking chart (laughs) like i am not i can't even express how much worse it was right right like and times square had had a heyday before this but because of the austerity measures because of you know the lack of money in the city it became what we see in this movie in the late 70s and early 80s. And shortly after this started the quote-unquote cleanup that Mm -hmm. Pam's dad is trying to affect in this movie through Ed Koch and then Giuliani and all of the things that they did um, to basically resurface all of Times Square. Um, So it's just a really interesting sort of snapshot Mm-hmm. I'm going to just put this in the chat. It's interesting, too. We should do. I don't think we said this on mic yet, that this movie was filmed entirely on location, which yes. is really, which is very cool. Because when you say snapshot, it's, I mean, it's a literally. Yeah. yeah. I just put a link in the chat to the chart that I'm telling people they need to fucking look at if they're going to complain about the crime rate in New York right now. Look at a chart is such a good, <laughs> like, yeah, just in general. Look at a chart. When in doubt, Read look at a fucking statistics. chart. Yeah. Yeah. And statistics can lie, but like at least try to find some facts. Mm-hmm. Um, but the crime rate peaked in New York City in 1990 um, with about 20, 22 to 2300 murders per year. Mm-hmm. Um, it has not reached over 500 murders per year in about a decade and a half. 
Right. It's like this, the drop was and precipitous. the drop was... Yeah. That's the word I was going to say. Precipitous. <laughs> yes. Yes. And a lot of people credit, like, oh, we're going to get... I don't want to get too political on this, but, you know, a lot of people credit Giuliani for that drop, and I would not... Uh, I would not. I would not simplify it in that way, because... It is easy to say less murder is better, and Giuliani yeah. was... Like, sure. Obviously, there is... But the drop in the murder rate is not as a result of broken windows policing i'm sorry right that's all i'm gonna say about that that's all i'm gonna say about that um but yeah like so ed koch is the one that brought in all of these like renewal uh policies business friendly policies to kind of crack down on the people that were living in times square that we see where it really was all like peep shows strip joints like homeless people all of that stuff um so yeah, just to say, Times Square is almost like a character in this movie, <laughs> Andrea. So wise. Um, yeah. But but in a, in a way that is, uh, there are things about this movie that couldn't happen and wouldn't happen and wouldn't be at issue at all if this movie were set anywhere else so it is yeah i mean the movie is literally called Times square it's not called two queer teens in Maybe a city it should be <laughs> great title thank um, you so much i do but this is what i mean about this movie being both sort of incredibly realistic about some things and unrealistic about others because mm -hmm. the vibe in new york city at the time it looked like this a 13 and a 16 year old girl could not freely romp through Times Square in a way that would feel as like Wizard of Oz as this it, does. Wizard of Oz is great. I was also thinking it reminds me of like, um, uh, uh, not the Island of Misfit Toys. What is the island called where the kids in Pinocchio? Oh, it doesn't God, matter. I don't remember. But yeah. it is, there is a whole like um, Neverland vibe to this or like, yeah. Um, oh my god, where's my English degree? What is it called? There is a term for this kind of escape, and I can't think of it, and it'll come to me tomorrow when it doesn't do me any good. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, but it does. Yeah. It feels like, it almost feels like Times Square is protecting them, or the mm -hmm. city itself is protecting them from, you know, Pam's father and all of that yeah. finding them. Because it is the kind of, like, chaos or whatever of the city that they disappear into over and over again whenever right. they're close to right. being discovered. Yeah. Um, Conveniently ignoring the fact that there would have been a lot of danger for two young teenage girls in the city at that of time. Of course, yeah. Um, but that's my little diversion about Times Square itself. There's a lot of interesting reading about it. Um, I think actually right now I want to shout this out because I might forget otherwise. Um there is a writer, uh, a trans writer, actually, Jeremiah Moss, who um, wrote a book called, well, he, write, he writes a blog called Vanishing New York that chronicles all of the places, little small businesses and stuff mm -hmm. that have been pushed out, um, which sounds depressing, but it's also like a celebration of them. Right. Um, and he also wrote a book called... Vanishing New York, How a Great City Lost Its Soul. Um, and it talks about sort of what he's calling the hypergentrification of New York City um, over time. So I really want to read that book because 
he seems like he has a very interesting take on it. He also wrote something oh, called Feral sure. City on Finding Libera- Liberation in Lockdown New York um, and was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Transgender Nonfiction. So, and won the Pushcart Prize. Like, I came across this when looking for more information about sort of the evolution of Times Square over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Jeremiah Moss is a pseudonym. His real name is Griffin Hansbury. Um but highly recommend checking out the Vanishing New York blog in particular is really fascinating for someone who lived there for most of their twenties. Like it really feels to me like I'm realizing that everybody that moves to New York from somewhere else will never not have somebody telling them that it was cooler before they got there. (laughs) Of course. Uh, No matter when I moved to New York in 99 and so I missed a lot of the sort of pre-gentrification feel, but I grew up right outside and I spent a lot of the 80s going into the city and experiencing like the windshield washers and sort of the the mess that was the city at that time. Mm-hmm. So to go back to sort of the plot, I guess, <laughs> it we got lost in the middle because the plot get lost, got lost in the middle, you know? Mm-hmm. they become slightly more famous it seems um and then they start throwing televisions off buildings which is a crime it's a big crime and and you could I, kill people you could absolutely kill people and it shows that is where you really start to see that pam and nikki are not actually cut from the same plot yep because nikki is not concerned with it's not even the crime of it, but whether or not she might kill somebody. Yeah, she's and, fully destructive. Yeah, and part of that, I think, probably comes from, like, she says, you know, there's a point in the movie where her social worker writes uh, kind of like an open letter. Yeah. And she says something about Nikki um, likely being brought in for manslaughter charges for mm-hmm. the death of a friend of hers. And Nikki tells Pam that her friend OD'd. Mm-hmm. It says, she says the drowning death of, of a friend. Right. And Nikki says her friend OD'd and she tried to, I don't know if she says freshen her up or something yeah. kind of offhand about like, she throws her in a river basically. Basically. Yeah. Um, and so likely that the friend was going to die anyway. Yeah. Um, but, but either way she says like people die. Like she's somebody who is, who, death is not like a stranger yeah she's seen a lot more and so her that part of life yeah and so her like fear of death or worry around death is obviously less than pam's who has lived a very uh sheltered it seems life um yeah so so i understand you know it's not okay (laughs) but i mean i think that's that's what's going on there Um, yeah i mean there's a sort of i don't know i feel like Lots of young teens have sort of destructive tendencies. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that, that's the other thing is. Yeah. I mean, I, you know. I would have spent... thrown a television off a building, just not uh, when yeah. there were people. Exactly. Exactly. It would be fun to see it smash on the ground, but like yeah. not when there's people. You know, you find a you find an abandoned lot and you smash stuff, you know. That was a real hobby of my friend group was like we would just collect Ours was lighting stuff on fire. Oh, okay. well, we, we graduated. <laughs> that was our from, hobby. We were arson. I was an arson. I, I wasn't. I was. I was always right on the edge. I was always like 
around other people who were setting things on fire for example and then we graduated into once we could drive we would like go out on trash night and collect like um computer monitors and stuff and then take them back behind the barnes and noble parking lot um (laughs) and destroy things at night yeah yeah so i do understand that but we weren't dropping them off of high rise not high rises but off of tall buildings in the middle of new york city yeah and i this is where we see pammy start to kind of be like whoa wait this is a little out of control i don't know that this is what i signed up for and you know i think it's a little disingenuous in that theoretically she's like working at a strip club at 13 Mm -hmm. so like throwing tvs off of but you know it's it's a plot device to start to divide them and to show the cracks between you know Nikki and Pam's different experiences of the world. Exactly. And this is when Pam reaches out to her dad again and is like, says Nikki needs me. You start to see it as like Pam is sticking this out because she wants to protect Nikki. Even though she's clearly a little tired of the situation, it seems. Right. She says like Nikki still needs me. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Um. They also do a, a silly mugging. <laughs> this movie, again, like, it is very silly. And the movie does keep reminding you that they are kids. kids. Like, yeah, that scene is almost charming. <laughs> yeah. They suddenly have a gun. Yeah. Um, and they hold up a guy, but then start laughing and he gets away. You know, Nikki runs a three-card Monty game. There's a lot of sort of, like... Uh, frolicking street urchin mm-hmm. stuff happening. There's also <laughs> Tim Curry uh, refers to his listeners as the Truth Squad. Oh yeah, which I thought was like reminded me of uh, the Truth is a Virus mm-hmm. from Pumpkin Oh yeah, Volume. there are a few of those like yeah. rallying cries to throughout this movie. Yeah, like, you know, it's like our fair is fair, like our truth is a virus. Um, yeah. And a lot of this communication it, is happening via newspaper, <laughs> which is very early 80s. So fun. Yeah. But so the the sort of like inevitable climax of the movie is the divide of the two of them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Nikki starts to spiral. They have sort of a sort of a falling out. But I'm not, a little confused yeah. about this because it seems you can like hear the, I am too. <laughs> well, because so the biggest the thing that really kind of splits them is Johnny LaGuardia. Yeah, because Nikki gets it in her head that this is what it seems to me, and and it's important to remember that a lot of what Alan Moyle intended for this movie was cut. Yeah, but it seems to me that Nikki. Nikki gets it in her head that Pamela, she says, has the hots for Johnny LaGuardia, which is like a young person insecurity. Fine. Mm-hmm. But then Johnny show, shows up at Nikki calls Johnny. Yeah. And tells him to come to their home. They're for like, an exclusive and then leaves and Pam is there. Yeah. And Pam doesn't know Johnny's coming. And it's like Nikki sets it up. So and it is. Does Johnny show up with wine? Yes. Or vodka. For, 
vodka for a child. Yeah. Which is like, I don't get the impression that Johnny is trying to sleep with this kid. I like, That's not what I think is happening. But he is, it is again, a little bit like hiding out where it's like, okay, don't show up at a homeless teen's hideout with a bottle of vodka no matter what your intention is that's like, a good just, rule to live by let's just not hang out with teenagers yeah. like maybe let's not do that but it does shows feel up. romantic on his end it in a way intimate it yeah. feels like yeah he there's like some sort of closeness with the two of them mm-hmm. i don't get the impression that like he would have tried to like make a no. move on i don't think that but nikki orchestrates this in a way then shows up and it's like, oh, isn't this cute? And loses her shit. Yeah. It is a kind of, like, she has a sort of paranoia that she, like, then brings to reality and then is proven right, kind of, but only because she, yeah, like, created the situation. Not that this is in the text of the movie, but it seems to me also that part of what's driving this is that she knows that Pam's not going to be living this life forever right. and doesn't have to live this life forever right. like Nikki does. Right, totally, totally. Um, I also would say that I don't think that the sort of intimate romantic vibe is coming at all from Pam or Nikki. It's only coming from Tim Curry's character. Right. Like, they're not well enchanted except- by him in the same way, I don't think. I mean, they're enchanted no. by him, but not like... Like, Pam definitely has a point where she's like, dude, what are you doing? Like, Yeah, she doesn't... Again, like, Nikki... Nikki say like telling Pam she thinks she has the hots for him doesn't seem to come from any like evidence in the movie. That mm-hmm. is all Nikki. Even if she doesn't, I don't even know that she necessarily actually believes it so much as she's looking for yeah something. And she's then, a, and she's again, losing her shit and she just yeah. like needs an, an excuse to kind of go crazy. And she does. Yeah. And she kicks the two of them out. But then she goes to the back yeah. to the radio station. She shows up at the station. And insists that she be let on the air to reach Pam. And it is so sad because early, early on in the movie, they have this scene where she says, like, if you need me, mm-hmm. scream my name. I'll do the same and we'll promise that we'll yeah. like, find each other. Um, so she does this song over the air. Although he cuts it off. He cuts it off. So Pam doesn't actually hear it. But then he does bring her mm-hmm. back to Pam. Who he finds sucking her thumb. She's like sleeping in, right? It's that scene yeah. where yeah. again, so we're reminded that she is an actual child still. Yeah. And, and another scene that doesn't exist in the movie or maybe did and was cut out. Um, oh, wait, I misremembered. Go ahead. A doctor was called that sort of sedates Nikki at the station and then he goes and gets Pam. That's right. I misremembered and brings her what back. Was going on there. Yeah, Nikki yeah. was still there. Um, That's right. And so. Pam in this case kind of breaks Nikki out in a little bit of like a flip of the original premise. You know, she takes Nikki out of the station. When she's being led to Nikki and you said like, it's obviously implied that she's been sedated. um, I I texted you at that point because I thought, and I kind of almost think, I don't know. I don't know if that would have been a more, it would have been a sadder move. Well, maybe not. Again, I'm still working out how I feel about this movie mm-hmm. because the movie that's referenced at the beginning, which we talked about a little bit, is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yep. It's the movie that 
her that Pam's dad says she asks to go see mm-hmm. and he won't let her not because of the movie subject matter but because of its location right she says that's not true whatever of that isn't true I'm not totally sure yeah but I thought we were going to get a teen one flew over the cuckoo's nest that Pam was or a girl up, interrupted or a girl interrupted where Angelina where Jolie's character is basically numb one flew with... over the cuckoo's nested exactly yeah um yeah but we don't no um, um which is kind of nice yeah although i do imagine that this movie ends at a as positive a place for nikki kind of as it can um because they break pam like you said in a in a little reversal breaks nikki out mm-hmm. and, and they you, plan a concert <laughs> they, they plan a they plan a rooftop concert um all the empire records think- do you think Pam is hoping that will sort of snap Nikki out of it? Or do you think Pam thinks this is like a last hurrah that she knows mm. Nikki is kind of lost and that they are in two different. I think it felt to me and I don't really know entirely how I feel about this yet, but it felt to me like Pam knowing that she's going to go back to her previous life right. and trying way, to that's... yeah and trying to give Nikki what she knows Nikki really wants which is fame and to be celebrated and however it ends it ends but that she wants to give that to to Nikki mm-hmm. after all of the time of being like it doesn't matter if we're famous like why do you want to be famous finally she's like this is what you need this is what right. you want i'm going to try to right. give it to you um so she she and I almost called him Hard Harry. She and Johnny LaGuardia uh, sort of guerrilla advertised this concert on the rooftop of a movie theater in Times Square. And we get our Billie Jean montage <laughs> of, all the, of all the young girls dressed in garbage bags with uh, masks painted on their faces uh-huh. to mimic what uh, Nikki has been apparently wearing. I do have a note in the very beginning of my notes being like, is she wearing a trash bag? She was wearing a trash bag. <laughs> she yeah. was. More as a fashion statement than as a homeless youth statement, mm-hmm. though. Um, because they and, magically found trunks of clothing yeah. in the warehouse that they could just pull from. Again, it really is a, like, magical fantasy mm-hmm. version of homelessness. Yeah, the city is providing for them. Mm-hmm. You know? They find various ways to make money, including Why washing the windshields. Fuck can I think of what it's called? It's it goes back to like fucking Shakespeare. Like when you go out into the woods, every like you are separate from and therefore not beholden to the societal expectations and pressures, and it is why you can gender bend and you can commute. And then when you return to, once you solve whatever your issue is out in the wild, you can return to the orderly world. And what is amiss in the orderly world will be fixed for you there. There, It is killing me. That's what's going on here for Pamela. It is why you know Nikki can never be saved because she doesn't have an orderly world to return to because she is actually a homeless child who does not fit in with the system and she has nowhere to return to. And it's why... If you're attuned to that kind of story, you know that Nikki does not get saved in this movie, but Pamela does right. from about 10 seconds in. Exactly. And I cannot think of what it is called. Where are my other English majors? Help me, please. You'll get it as soon as we stop recording. I know. Um, so they are known as the Sleaze Sisters. 
<laughs> sisters. Which again, early like Riot We're close. Girl. Like Rit! <laughs> she's not sure she wants to do it. She's still kind of sedated and down and like feeling kind of unsure. So, but she finally caves. She's up on the roof. She says she's um, throwing a concert to celebrate her escape from mental illness, which is a sentence. Um, <laughs> and she says to Pam somewhere around here that, you know, she calls her slick and she says slick's going back to school. Um, but yeah, so she, she sings her, the song that she wrote. The, it's also very funny that she has like one, one song. song. Oh, we have to talk about when she writes that poem because she thinks it's a poem. Right. And it's so funny because she's such a teen, like boy in that scene because she like, yes. she like reads it to Pam and then she's like, it's like dog shit. It's whatever. Yeah. So I don't even know why. I don't yeah. even know why I did it. And then it's Pam who recognizes that what she's actually written is a song. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, and she's definitely so like the dumb teenage boy in this movie. Yeah, it's so funny. She's this is like probably it's whatever. It's, it's just stupid. stupid. I don't even know why well, I wrote it. It's like whatever. Dumb. Dumb. I'll probably just set it on fire. Whatever. <laughs> um, and then Pam's like, "No, you yeah. have a beautiful spirit inside of you." Right, right, right. Um, and so, yeah, she gets to play it again. <laughs> yeah, for everybody, and they fucking love it. They go nuts. They go crazy for Nikki. Yeah, yeah, and then. At the end, the cops come up to the roof to get her, and instead of uh, letting them take her, mm-hmm. she falls backwards off the roof into the loving arms and the, what is that thing, the, the, like a tarp that they set up to catch her? <laughs> it's like they knew. Yeah. And, and then she runs away. And she runs away. And it's, you know, you, I was, up until that point that moment i was ready for this movie to end with nikki's death Mm -hmm. um and i think i even said to you while i was watching it like i'm so ready for nikki to die in this movie and there there are a couple of you know there's that one scene before she's reunited with pam where she dives into the water into the water and you think (laughs) you don't think she's going to die (laughs) sorry i just heard you correct yourself (laughs) you can have your you can have your accent on this podcast it's okay (laughs) thank you um she dives into the water and she, uh, you're not sure in that moment if it's actually a suicide attempt or not. Right. She, it, you know, whatever. I think she's kind of testing herself to mm-hmm. see if it, if she actually is, you know what I mean? Like chasing yeah. death or not. Um, and so there's a version of this movie where she leaps off a building and dies. Mm-hmm. She's been so insistent this whole time that what she needs to save her is fame Mm -hmm. Pam says like you know why are you worried about that but it is it is it's the recognition it's the fact that these people are there to see her that does save her yeah and she's able to disappear into the crowd because they are all dressed it's Billy Jean it's a a flock of young exactly it's the I hate to say this phrase again it's the underground railroad of white girls (laughs) again I say that very tongue-in-cheek but we brought this up with Billy Jean where I really felt like that was what the the writers of this movie probably wrote on paper uh, oh in billy jean for sure they're literally transporting her across state lines and this is yeah. an echo of that or yeah. a pre echo it's a re- yeah it's yeah. a pre- yeah whatever it's it's it shares um yeah that sentiment and yeah that's she how she dis- disappears because they're all dressed yeah. like her um and unlike billy jean i don't think that nikki ends up in vermont um 
No, and I don't I think either. This is absolute. This is like definitional kind of manic pixie dream girl because Pam gets to go back to her life having become, uh, like, a better, more evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, her dad sees her realized, now for an, yeah. as an individual version you know. of herself, and Nikki probably probably dies goes off to die yeah or go to or or if she's arrested first right you know she, ends up in the system in yeah it's not a happy ending no it's a momentary sort of like flight of freedom that we know is not gonna last exactly um and then we can talk about well we will talk about the music in this movie mm-hmm. but then the one weird musical note in this movie is a song by the Bee Gees at the end I was like, what wait, think? the last song is a is disco? What's happening? I found out that the uh producer of this movie also like managed the Bee Gees or something. And just Oh, so it's literally just It's just a vanity thing. He was like, I know these these guys, I you know Very there's, funny. There's a lot of lore about the creation of this movie and the production um that we can get into if we talk about the uh soundtrack. Robert's have to. Yeah. As much as New York is a character in this movie, I would argue so is the soundtrack. Would you argue that? I think I would. I think you would. Yes, I think I would agree. It's a great, something we know about Alan Moyle is he is very thoughtful about the music yes. in, his, in his movies. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much of a hand you might know more than me. Yeah, um, I did a little bit of research. He had in this soundtrack, but... Yeah, I mean, it's got Patti Smith, it's got the Pretenders, Jersey. it's got Talking Heads, <laughs> it's got the Ramones, obviously, it's a big part the of Cure. it, Lou Reed, yeah, Roxy Music, Susie Quattro, like, it's just top to bottom. Lou Reed, Lou Reed and Patti Smith are really interesting ones for this mm-hmm. one, when you think, like, considering that song in the middle that we have so far only mentioned, yeah. and I don't really want to spend a lot of time I on it, except... I don't think we need to, it's just incredibly... But it's doing Upsetting. that thing that is so annoying, especially now where, like, they think there's something really interesting. And Patti Smith and Lou Reed are so guilty of this. And, like, Patti Smith, I have complex feelings about. Um, mm-hmm. Or not complex. I have complicated feelings about. She's a South Jersey artist. And so for that reason, you know, I'm a little uh, forgiving of some of her. And she's also written some incredible songs. Whatever. Mm-hmm. All that to say, she and Lou Reed are both really famous for thinking they're being really, like, transgressive and in- not uh, insightful. Transgressive and insightful by using language that they that is overtly racist, homophobic, mm-hmm. to make a point. Um, yeah. And that's what the girls think they're doing, too. They're like, because yep. the lyrics, they, like say a bunch of slurs and then they say your daughter is one one too yeah and it's like well not really (laughs) no no and i know that what they think they're saying is like well we're part of an oppressed group right and therefore we have ownership over all of this language and you my father don't want to admit who your daughter is and so we can say but it's like no no actually no and you couldn't in 1980 like you like you're not a part of that group. Like, and, even Nikki, who is an actual homeless child, right. is still not, you know, most a part of, the, of most of those groups. Right. Yeah. And it's like, again, I know people think they're doing something really cool, and but you're, it's just not. And no. 
in this movie it is um and and their point is for it to be sort of shock value and i i i just have very little yeah i just have like very little i don't care when this movie was made i just don't think it's ever okay no and i do i had to remind you of this and i just want to remind our listeners this is such a side note but jewel has done the same thing pieces of you is a song that does this exact same thing i just want everyone which i did not remember i just went back and read the lyrics to that song and was like jesus crazy it's crazy yeah that's what i mean that like probably there was not a big outcry about that scene in 1980 no definitely Um, not we were still and in some cases people are still fine with it today i uh yeah yeah it definitely kind of took me out of out of it but um so do you want to hear a little bit about the background of the music i would love to so the producer robert stigwood um had recently done saturday night fever um and kind of wanted the success of that kind of movie and its soundtrack again mm-hmm. so when they were um when they were producing this movie he kept pushing for more and more music he wanted like a two uh a double lp to come out of it because he wanted to make as much money as he could from the oh. soundtrack but alan moyle was kind of like stop shoving more and more songs into my movie like i need an actual movie to come out of this not a music video right um and eventually they fired alan moyle and cut as we brought up earlier the all of the scenes that made it more explicit that this was about a romance between two girls um and just stuffed it with music and like moyle has had bad luck with people taking his movies over and doing what they want with them he doesn't seem to care what a commercial success is and wants yeah. to make his movies and the people that have the money are like, no, 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 this is a business, sir. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to just, you know, if you don't, if you don't go along with what we want, like in this movie, we'll just kick you off a bit. And, and then, it actually took him 10 more years to make another movie after this. Cause he was like, so frustrated by that. And do you know, um, I don't remember reading conversations or reading anything about, him having that same kind of issue with pump up the volume they did there was some alteration of the original story of pump up the volume to make it more palatable like i think oh, I, we did talk about that a we little talked bit, about right? how originally it was like agree though yeah but like his original version of that story was a radio dj that was right. his last broadcast and he was going to kill himself on air right right, right. and they were like dude bit much he is very interested in death in a, in he, a way that is even an, Empire Records deals with it in a much lighter way. But it's fascinating. funny that, yeah, Empire Records, they let him, he, Empire Records, it seems like maybe as a le- lesson from this movie, because we know uh, 17 minutes of that movie were cut, full characters, like, that it seems like he, this poor guy, because then he lets them do what they want with his movie and it flops yeah they like so he kind of can't win yeah and some of the scenes that were cut um specifically were so when i was watching it there's like a really really abrupt transition that ends with them on a subway with different haircuts and different clothing Mm -hmm. and there was apparently a whole scene where they like cut each other's hair and trade clothes and it's sort of this like bonding moment between the two of them that kind of Can't builds have them bond up too that much. relationship yeah Can't exactly have them bond too much in this movie jody exactly you know what happens if girls go around bonding oh geez yeah can't can't have that 
Um, so yeah, the music, I mean, the music is a huge part of it. Apparently it just became more important almost to the producer than making a cohesive film. That's such a bummer. Um, <laughs> so one of the other producers, Bill Oaks, uh, who supervised the music for this and Saturday Night Fever and Grease, um, wanted Mick Jagger to play Johnny LaGuardia. And That's also funny. consider David Bowie for the project. Okay. Yeah. I but, want it to be Tim Curry. But, yeah. But those well, are interesting. A, Alan Moyle, I think, was the one that insisted on it being Tim Curry. Um, yeah, there's a quote from Oaks that said, we brought in another editor who edited separately from Alan Moyle, and it was taking a lot of the hard edges off. Um. It wasn't commercial enough for Stigwood, and it was probably too commercial for the director. So there was a lot of heated discussion in the editing suites, and it shows. It got lost somewhere along the way. So it was kind of a too many it's cooks. A, yeah. I would just love to see a movie that Alan Moyle, I guess it's Pump of the Volume is the closest thing we've got. I think so. I right. think so. And it is, I would say, objectively, you know, it's going to, it's hard for me to say this. Objectively, I think it's, the best of these of these three it feels the most like one person's vision yeah you know um according to roger ebert Times square is an is filled with ideas for a movie but they're never just they've never just been organized into a movie i think the other thing to mention about the music which i kind of alluded to earlier was that um bikini kills kathleen hannah is a big fan of this movie and i think did it did inspire like uh, Nikki is a definitely a prototype of like a riot girl. Apparently the LP is now, or at least as of a few years ago, was out of print and had been for years. Mm. I wonder if this is a movie that'll get a. It's been like getting some. Yeah. It's been is getting. Is it going to be a musical? No, this it's not. It's going to be a great musical oh actually. My God. Yeah. Maybe fix the story a little bit. Make it an actual yeah. lesbian story. Um, it, oh God. And then put it on fucking Broadway. Well, it's been, um, so it was remastered at some point a few years ago. And once it was remastered, there was a director's commentary added. There was a little bit of a revival of interest in it. And it has been shown in the past three years, not infrequently at, um, sort of independent movie houses oh, cool. as like an event, um, like a screening, um, using the original, like, uh, cut of the movie like the original That's 35 cool. millimeter the people in this movie some of them disappeared completely afterwards um, oh in real life uh, yeah in real life and some are tim curry <laughs> <laughs> that's basically it his, so the woman is nobody well, the, really going on to do anything else so the woman who played nikki robin johnson not much um, she was in a few things after this, but, and she worked as a traffic reporter in Los Angeles. Oh, weird. Uh, from like 96 to 2003. Um, but she's kind of disappeared. Um, the guy who, unfortunately, and sadly, the guy who played Pam's dad died of an AIDS-related illness in the 80s. Oh, I geez. think that that's one of the things that this is a time capsule of, which is New York right before the AIDS epidemic really mm -hmm. took off. Trini Alvarado, who was Pam um 
has worked since quite a bit in in smaller things. She her most known performance was as Meg in uh, Little Women in the '94 oh. movie. Oh, huh. um, and she was in the Frighteners. So she has worked some. She's just not as fa- I mean, Tim Curry is obviously the most famous person from this movie, right? And then the woman who played the social worker, Anna Marie Hosford, Horsford. Um, I knew immediately I'd seen her a million times before, and I figured out from where. She was in The Wayans Brothers, the TV show. But even before that, she was in a sitcom called Amen. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I watched. Yeah. As soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, I know her from a million things. Yeah. But, I mean, that's that's the main cast. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention that I just want to come back to is the guy that runs the strip club mm-hmm. um in this movie oh yeah the likable strip club owner yeah who, who like doesn't a 13 year old child and is yeah exactly yeah. and doesn't care that she's not going to be topless um was played by miguel uh pinero and he was a playwright actor and founder uh co-founder of the new Yorkian poets cafe which that's very cool is very fucking cool yeah um I went to the New York in a few times when I lived in New York. Ooh. It was very fun. That's um, cool. Yeah. He's fascinating. We don't need to do a whole thing on him, but he is super interesting. Um, he, who, yeah, was in prison on and off most of his life, was affiliated with the Young Lords, like, wrote his first play, I think, while he was in prison. Oh, wow. Um, a play that was turned into a film like it also went from riverside church to the public theater to the to the beaumont and was nominated for six tony awards whoa won a drama what was it called uh it short eyes um it's it's fascinating actually when he was it says when he was released um from sing sing on parole in 1973 he was able to present short eyes with the family which is a group of formerly incarcerated it's like a theater group of formerly incarcerated people. And uh, it's a play based, a drama based on his experiences in prison and oh. portrays how a house of detention populated primarily by black and Latino inmates is affected by the incarceration there of a white pedophile considered the lowest form oh, of prison life. Right. Like, and he just like, he's just in this movie as like the strip club owner. Yeah. He's also been in a bunch of other films and supporting roles such as Fort Apache, the Bronx, Breathless, um, he was in Miami Vice, hmm. the TV show, I think. Uh, yeah, in the TV series Miami Vice as a drug lord. Like, fascinating guy. Fascinating guy. Yeah, that's Just, really cool. I uh, wish this movie had had the foresight to populate its side characters with more, like, um, New York City, uh, like, yeah, uh, like, Kind characters. of like fringe yeah. characters, yeah, yeah. Like that's really cool, isn't it? Like that mm-hmm. feels to me like real New York is in this movie. Like mm-hmm. it's filmed in the city in Times Square on location, and there are sort of hints of what was actually going on at the time in New York. Um, we do have some tenuous Jersey connections, other than the fact that it was filmed across the river. Um, One that I found recently that I thought was kind of interesting. And this is a movie I actually haven't seen, um, but it is a Jersey movie. So the screenplay author of 
Times Square, um, who is Jacob Brackman, also wrote The King of Marvin Gardens. Oh. Which is a Jersey movie. Yeah. Um, have you seen it? No, but, but I know about it, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen it either, but now I'm curious. Uh, what? Oh, I wanted to ask you before you move too far away from the Alan Moyle verse, mm-hmm. the extended Alan Moyle, yeah. the extended Alan Moyle cinematic, what? Yeah. You know. Um, did you read anything about his movie? Uh, well, he directed it. He didn't write it. The Gun in Betty Lou's Handbag. I've heard of it. I know nothing, though. It is apparently a comedy farce, um, a screwball comedy. Um, that, Because for a second I was like, oh, am I going to have to do a whole deep dive and just see everything he's done? And I don't know <laughs> that this is one that I'll watch. Um, it seems very silly. It's about an uh, unassuming librarian who admits to a crime she didn't commit for the attention. Um, <laughs> and it's about her, like being behind bars behind bars betty lou meets a variety of hardened and colorful characters rather than intimidate her they actually increase her self-confidence um once she is released she begins to dress speak and act differently and it's about like what happens um when she gets caught up in all of this oh the movie poster is so funny <laughs> yeah it's cast is really interesting because it's penelope ann miller um who has been in a million things mm. she's like tony award-winning um, but Adventures in Babysitting, Biloxi Blues, Big Top Pee Wee, <laughs> Awakenings, Kindergarten Cop, uh, Carly, Carlito's Way. She's done a, a ton of stuff. Yeah. Um, but then also Julianne Moore, William Forsythe, huh. um, uh, Stanley Tucci, what? Catherine Keener, Meatloaf. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of star-studded, but wow. apparently it's very silly. Ooh, 14% um, on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Good lord. Yeah. Not a great... Uh... The British the British film magazine Empire gave it three stars out of five, calling it, quote-unquote, watchable. <laughs> I'll take watchable. <laughs> apparently it's very silly. Um, and so I'm sort of interested to watch it. I haven't decided totally yet, but it's 1992, so in between... Pump up the volume in Empire Records. He directed, he directed this, this? movie. Wow. Yeah. So. Wow. I'm, uh, I'm. Okay. Vaguely interested. It's definitely not one we're going to cover um, on the podcast, I don't think. But if anybody yeah. else watches it or has seen it, uh, let us know. I'm curious. Um, yeah. I haven't even looked to see if it's one that we can. We can get online. But but I would bet that we could find it somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, I am so fascinated by Alan Moyle, man. Yeah, his career is... He's like an old dude from Canada who oh. directed... He, yeah, he's Canadian. Huh. That's I don't know why that's interesting. I me. know. He's from Quebec. Who has directed all of these, like, rebellious teen movies that have become these cult classics for people who grew up in the 80s and 90s. Like, how does this guy end up being this person and and directing these kinds of movies? I'm like, I'm so interested in his life. The, for Times Square, I did read that he based, so he did, he co-wrote. I think it's um, based on his story, right? But somebody else wrote the screenplay? So he co-wrote it. And then I think, yeah, it's it's a little complicated, but he's given a writing credit on it. And it's based on a diary he found 
Did oh, I tell you I this? I saw this. No, yeah, but I did yeah, yeah, yeah. see this. Say more about this. This is really uh, okay. This is interesting. Let me see where I found that. Um, I wrote it down. Here we go. It just says the movie was inspired by a diary that writer and director Alan Moyle found in a secondhand couch that he bought. The diary was from That's a young the dream. I know. I know. The diary was from a young mentally disturbed woman that featured words and drawings about her life on the streets. And he based it on that. That's a very interesting. Yeah. I'd love to see that. I know. I need to do more like Alan Moyle research. Just I like, I don't know that I'm like desperate to watch any more of his movies. because I don't think that they're going to be of the same sort of like level of meaningful to me that the ones we've seen have been. Yeah. But I'm interested in his life. <laughs> like who, who is this, this is, man? I don't know if what's happening now, what I'm about to do, what, where we've gone. This is very interesting to you and me. I now have spun out a little bit and I'm looking at the credits for um, Grace Carrie Bickley, who wrote the gun and Betty Lou's handbag. Okay. In 92. And then she wrote nothing until High Crimes in 2002, which is that Morgan Freeman, Ashley Judd thriller. I don't know if you, it was in that run of like Along Came a Spider and all of those kinds uh -huh. of movies. Um, and then she wrote a TV movie in 2003 and then another one in 2017. And now in 2021, she wrote this, she was the executive story editor and wrote um, the TV, Disney TV series Big Shot, which is a John Stamos show that I didn't even know was a thing, um, where he plays a temperamental college basketball coach who gets fired from his job and must take a teaching and coaching job at an elite all-girls private high school. So it's um, Mighty Ducks, but <laughs> for, or Little Giants or any one of those, but for- right. 2021 with john stamos and that's what i mean like how do you go from doing three movies 20 years ago to then a disney plus series star it's so yeah it's fascinating um okay so should we should we put Times square to bed as rudy giuliani has <laughs> we uh, uh fucking that guy uh i think our Alan what a, what a precipitous drop in a person's <laughs> reputation. This is not a political podcast, but fuck that guy. Um, yeah. yeah, so I'm glad we watched it. I think Me it was too. interesting. I was totally. really thrown off by a lot of things in it, including mm -hmm. the weird cutting and the sort of missing pieces of the story and all of that. But, you know, as somebody who grew up near New York and spent a lot of time there in the 80s and 90s, it was, I think it was... And I think a lot of people say this. I'm not unique in this, but it was. I think it was more interesting from that perspective than from like, and what was missing from it than actually right. what it was. Um, but yeah, I'm glad we watched it. Yeah, I like this little Alan Moyle series. That yeah, we, did. we are. So should we talk about what we're doing next week? Because it's also a little different. Yeah, I, I think the the thing that has happened sort of nicely now with us tying up. Alan Moyle with a movie that neither of us had seen, but was still connected to our, like those soul DNA movies we've been talking about is I think we've, at least on my end, I have shown you just about every one of those movies I can think of that I think are worth talking about that you hadn't already, that seen. I hadn't already seen. Yeah. There are definitely movies we haven't covered on this podcast because you had already seen them or I had already seen them that are really important to both of us. And we've talked about a lot of them just kind of off handed 
lately. Yeah. Um, so I think we're going to move into a sort of new, kind of a new season of yeah. this off season. Um, we're just making next, up seasons as we go. Yeah. With our yeah. next pick. And I think I have an idea for what I want to watch the week after maybe. So what I will say is movies coming up might be ones neither of us have seen might be ones we both have seen yeah i think right i think we're, we're gonna kind of divert listening. a little bit from the because the thing that andrea and i realized as we were doing this post yellow jackets uh yellow jackets hiatus off season whatever is that we might be doing this for 10 years well there's also that yes but the thing that we realized that i guess should have been not a surprise to either of us is that we love a lot of the same movies. Like, mm -hmm. even though the sort of, like, conceit of this is that, you know, I'm more Gen X and you're a millennial and we're about 10 years apart. And so our, our viewing habits are a little bit different. We do have a very similar sensibility in what we enjoy with some obvious differences. But, you know, a lot of the most important right, movies... John you're Candy, John Candy you're and I'm Molly Ringwald. Yeah. Right. But... <laughs> But a lot of the movies that I was obsessed with growing up are also movies you were obsessed with. Mm -hmm. And so where we could do a podcast where we just sit here and, like, talk about how great some of those movies are, it might be more interesting for both of us, at least, if we're also, like, looking at things at least one of us hasn't seen. So we won't have a podcast on, like, Real Genius anytime soon, but maybe someday. Boy, would I love to. I know. That's maybe someday, for just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. <laughs> uh yeah what was the other one we talked about it was real genius and say anything or no there was another one that better we off both dead. better off dead yeah yeah those two oh better my off God. dead is a kind of and so is real genius you know we've talked about the the molly ringwald john candy spectrum being not just john hughes movies and not just molly ringwald john yeah. candy movies oddly enough those two are kind of in the middle those are real midpoint John Candy, Molly Ringwald movies, I think. Better I think Off Dead is right. definitely more Molly Ringwald than John Candy. And I think Real Genius might and be more, more John Candy than Molly Ringwald. Yeah. But, but they both do Because there's not a lot of romance in Real Genius. I mean, yeah, there's no. a lot of flirting, but there's not totally. a lot of romance. Yeah, I think. But I do think they both trend more toward the center than a lot of the movies we've That's fair. We've That's watched. fair. Yeah. So it makes sense that we both would already love those movies. Yeah. Yeah. So this week coming up, we are going to watch the movie Patty Cakes. Now, this is going to, I apologize to any of our non-Jersey listeners, because this is a Jersey movie. Like this is, so Andrea hasn't seen it yet. I watched nope. it about two weeks ago. It's, Bridget, it's pretty recent. It's right? pretty recent. Yeah, it was give us... uh, 20, I want to say 2017, but let me confirm that. Patty Cakes. It might have been later than that. Nope, I'm right. 2017. Um, so it is based in... <laughs> it's based in my hometown, essentially. It's not really based in Saddlebrook, but it's based in the sort of triangle that is Lodi, Paramus, and like total, like that little Bergen-Passaic County borderline, um, which is my You're childhood. saying that as if you're clarifying talking for me about. and our listeners as if we're gonna be like oh right right right, right. yeah yeah I, of course for our listeners yeah. who aren't from jersey jody's saying that as if that's everybody in new jersey is nodding along the only people nodding along to that triangle are the people who live in that triangle who just to be clear. with me yeah. yeah 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 no totally 
But and I did not know that about this movie when I first turned it on. But I watched I wanted to watch this movie because I like Bridget Everett a lot. Yeah, she's and we've briefly mentioned somebody somewhere, which is the show that she was doing with uh, Jeff Hiller, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, Two or three seasons available, I think, on Max. Uh, You know, fuck the streamers. We need the writers to get their due. (laughs) But I have to say that. Um, We need a soundboard button. That when anybody hears I know. a certain sound, <laughs> they know the it's <laughs> yeah, it's our fuck the streamers yeah. button. We support unions, um, but so it is a story, a very Jersey-based story about a young female white, white rapper, uh, aspiring rapper, and her sort of attempt to make a career out of that. Also, attempt to. Um, just kind of live with a mom who's an alcoholic it's about her and her young her friends and their sort of like it also does end up eventually being about the fact that she is a white rapper which thankfully because it Mm -hmm. is written by a white man and so i was a little skeptical it's it's i'm not proposing this movie because i think it's a perfect movie in any way but i think that a i love bridget everett b -hmm. the performances in this movie are great by pretty much everyone involved. See, it takes place where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And D, it is a movie about a young woman and the power of music. And so it kind of fits it's with that. It's hitting all theme. of our, yep. It is. It is. So I'm going to rewatch it because I, I did enjoy it. And I didn't realize when I first started watching it how close it was filmed to where I grew up. So I now have to go back and watch every scene for places I recognize. <laughs> um, any of my Saddlebrook friends that are listening to this uh, part of there's a scene that takes place at the Excelsior, which is a banquet mm-hmm. hall yes. on route 46 that I had totally. to walk past to go to school every day. So it's totally. that. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I said totally. It's so specific. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to watch patty cakes. Um, It'll be fun to have is- an insider perspective of you as somebody who is a young white rapper um as you have somebody who grew up in the area (laughs) and then a slightly more outsider perspective as me as somebody who grew up in south jersey which is a totally different it's also for our listeners it's a very different world the main character um is played by danielle mcdonald who is a an australian accent uh, accent no she's not an australian accent she she doesn't have one in this movie um she does a very good job of hiding it but the other thing that she was in recently was a film called Dumplin'. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I liked I'm also. I'm familiar with it. I think I've never seen it, but it's also based on a, a book or a series of books, I think. I think so. Also. She was great yeah. in it. So cool. I like her a lot. Um, so finding this movie to watch, though, unfortunately, mm-hmm. this is going to be one you have to pay for. So I understand if not everybody wants to watch it, but we'll just ruin it for you. Mm-hmm. Um so it is a, but it is, even though it's relatively new, it is cheap. <laughs> it's three ninety nine, okay. in most places, including YouTube, Apple TV, Google Play, all that stuff, Amazon Prime. I think it's worth watching, especially if you're from North Jersey, but also if you are, if you like the types of movies we've been talking about, especially recently, that are very like about how music is life changing and important. Mm-hmm. Like I think that you'll relate to this also. Yeah, so I think, you know, we apologize for the the three ninety nine, but yeah, I I don't know. I 
if you've got the three ninety nine to spend on a movie, why not one that then you get to hang out with a couple of people and talk about it later? Yeah. And it's, you know, the guy that wrote this movie is from this area of North Jersey. Um, We'll talk more about him. I want to do a little bit more research on him specifically, but um, I think it really, it fully went under the radar. Yeah. Yeah. It is a movie that when I heard what it was about, I was like, how did I not already know what this was? Yeah. So Patty Cakes, I'm pumped. Yeah. I'm excited to watch it again. I've been thinking about it a lot since I last watched it. Um, and I'm not sure why it's kind of stuck in my brain. It might be the performances. It might be the fact that it's so close to where I lived, but Mm -hmm. it it has, it has been something I've wanted to rewatch. And I really want to talk to you about because of all the other conversations we've had. Like I've been pushing you to watch it and now I have a way to make you watch it. (laughs) Um, yeah, I only do anything if it's for a podcast at this point. It's a, (laughs) it's a sickness I have. I know. So anything I need you to watch to talk about with me, I'm just going to have to, um, propose as part of our podcast. Yeah. It's, it's sad, but it's true. Yeah. So yeah. Join us next week for that. Um, check out the movie and, uh, that's about it. Find us in the meantime. Oh, great question. Uh, you can find us, um, at watchers pod NJ on Instagram and other places. Uh, you can send us an email at watcherspodmj at gmail.com. You can leave us a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts. We would love to hear from you, especially if you're enjoying our sort of meandering movie (laughs) off-season, new season. Um, And you can find me at Jody underscore Mim, J-O-D-I-E underscore M-I-M on Instagram. And I'm at AQ, Andrew AQ on Instagram. Awesome. Thanks for hanging out with us again. And we will see you next week. Yeah, we'll see you in that little triangle of yeah, Lodi. Yeah, the Paramus, Lodi, and... Uh... <laughs> the Bermuda Triangle of New Jersey. <laughs> we'll see you there. See you on 346. <laughs>